Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, The Ten Commandments, with a message entitled, The Law and the Gospel. So let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 3 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. About three years ago, as I record this program, the George Barna Research Group released the results of a study which they entitled The End of Absolutes, America's New Moral Code. You know, in this study, the Barna Group pointed out that approximately 80% of Americans expressed concern about the nation's moral condition. So their conclusion? Moral concern is widespread across the demographic board. In other words, it doesn't matter which age category you belong to or, for that matter, whether you're connected to a faith group or not, you're most likely concerned about the decline in morality in America. Yet, while there's a concern about moral decline, Barna also found that roughly two-thirds of Americans thought that every culture must determine what is morally acceptable for itself. In other words, inexplicably, while people were concerned about moral drift, They also expressed that whatever your culture presently believed about right and wrong, well, that was moral. So I hope you can see most Americans believe whatever is considered moral at any moment, well, that's moral. Well, then how can they be concerned about a drift? But let's look at some of the other results that Barna found. 91% of Americans thought that the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. 76% of professed Christians agreed with that. 89% of Americans agreed with the statement, people should not criticize someone else's life choices. 76% of professing Christians also agreed. 79% of those surveyed agreed with the statement, people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. And 61% of professing Christians agreed. And 69% agreed with the statement, any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. 40% of professing Christians agreed with that. You know, at the risk of belaboring the point, I want to quote David Kinnaman, who is the president of the Barna Group. Here's what he wrote. As a result of the research we conducted, the highest good, according to our society, is finding yourself and then living by what's right for you. There's a tremendous amount of individualism in today's society, he writes, and that's reflected in the church, too. Millions of Christians have grafted New Age dogma onto their spiritual person. When we peel back the layers, we find that many Christians are using the way of Jesus to pursue the way of self. While we wring our hands about secularism spreading through culture, a majority of church-growing Christians have embraced corrupt, me-centered theology. Now, I raise all of this because I want to contrast two prevailing problems that the Church of Jesus Christ has always faced. One is the problem that has historically been called antinomianism, or translated lawlessness. You know, that, I would argue, is exactly what the Barna Group uncovered among Christians in America. So listen to 1 John 3, verse 4. It says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know, the context of that passage seems to be that that John is concerned that some of God's people were trivializing sin. 
And 1 John 3 verse 4 is John's response. Sin is breaking God's law. God has set out his moral law, and sin is violating that moral law. That is to say, God has a law. And as we've already seen in this study of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are the heart of God's law. These laws are not dependent on cultural values or norms. These laws are universal laws, always in effect in all cultures and at all times. Look at it this way. We've all heard about international law. Well, the Ten Commandments are supracultural law. This is law for all people at all times, in all cultures, in every geographical setting. Therefore, it's simply not true that people can believe what they want or choose any set of sexual mores that are in keeping with their culture. God has a universal law, and breaking his universal law is what he means when he calls a behavior sin. Now, it's not just that John said so in 1 John 3 verse 4. Jesus said the very same thing. In the end of his famous Sermon on the Mount, when he depicts the final judgment at the end of the age, he says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in his condemnation of these charlatans, these supposed followers of his, Matthew 7 verse 23 records Jesus as saying, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So there again, we find the definition of sin. Sin is lawlessness. It's violating God's international law. The apostle Paul also said the same thing. In Titus 2 verse 14, when speaking of Jesus, who is our Savior, Paul says of Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions who are zealous for good works. And so a part of our salvation, says Paul, is that we are saved from lawlessness by Jesus himself. Lawlessness has legal consequences, but Jesus came to redeem us not just from the consequences of lawlessness. No, no, read the text closely. Jesus came to save us from lawlessness itself. It is passages like this that has motivated church teachers of the ages to constantly warn against antinomianism or lawlessness. And the Barna research, I would argue, has exposed a massive antinomianism alive and well in the church today. You know, this must be seen for what it is. It's a crisis, and if not addressed, it will consume the church and utterly kill it. Look, if the first command says, you shall have no other gods before me, and if the majority of confessing Christians in the U.S. say it's acceptable to believe what you want just so you don't hurt anyone, they're countenancing the worship of another god. And might I add here, most of my listeners know that I'm a Canadian, so let me speak to that. I don't have an anti-American bone in my body. I, as a Canadian, view Americans as cousins. We have a different family, that's true, but we have the same genetic makeup. Indeed, I would imagine very close to the same survey results in Canada. And so here we are fighting a real spirit of antinomianism in the church, a problem for all of North America. But when I say that, you also have heard me say that the church has always fought two great evils. The first is antinomianism, and the second is legalism. Let me quote John Piper in an article that that he wrote for a Christian publication. There he said that legalism is a greater menace to the church than alcoholism. 
And of course, he's right. Alcoholism preys on the weakness of the flesh, but legalism is a denial of our faith. Indeed, in the history of Israel, we actually see a fight against both lawlessness and legalism. Let me explain. God gives his law to Israel, and the sinful heart finds the law an unwelcome intrusion and seeks a way to rebel. It may rebel with an outstretched fist and say, I will not submit to this. And as one examines the history of Israel, we find the people built shrines to the various idols on every high place they could find and refused to bend the knee and bow the head to God's law. And then came the Babylonian captivity. God punished Israel for her lawlessness, and after 70 years in exile, the people came back to the promised land and were ready to be instructed. And they never wanted the same experience again. And at that time, the exiles had an exceptional priest and a teacher of the law, and his name was Ezra. And Ezra leads the nation in revival. He leads them in a prayer of repentance. Let me read a part of that prayer. It's in Nehemiah 9, 16 to 17. But they, our fathers, acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. And then later in his prayer in verse 26, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn back to you, and they committed blasphemies. Now, that's the true reading of Israel's history. It leads to a solemn repentance and a call for Israel to turn back to the law. Now, think about this. Isn't it strange then that when Jesus, the long-expected Jewish Messiah, comes to the world, when the expected Savior of the human race comes, the one who will crush the head of Satan, he is most fiercely resisted by the teachers of the law. Now, what's the answer to that? And I think that brings us to the book of Galatians. In Galatians, Paul gives a clear condemnation to all who rely on the works of the law to save them. The law, says Paul, was never designed to do that. The law doesn't save. Only the gospel can do that. You know, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know how the ministries or ministry resources of Back to the Bible Canada are impacting your life, what you found most beneficial. Is there a specific resource or medium, a message that has brought blessing and encouragement into your life? Not only do your notes and emails offer encouragement, but they allow us to know how we can provide effective Bible teaching ministry. Our mission is to build you up in God's Word and to grow faithful disciples for His church. So touch base, would you? Email us at info at backtothebible.ca or visit us at backtothebible.ca and click on contact and leave your message there. We're so grateful for all you do to support this Bible teaching ministry. For more information or to send a gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I'm reading Galatians 3, 1 to 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, 
having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, a careful reading of this passage should indicate that there was a crisis happening among the early Christians living in the province of Galatia. Someone was bewitching them. That would mean that false teachers had moved in. That was, they were twisting the gospel. And as we continue to read through Galatians, it becomes clear that the issue was that this false gospel taught that law observance was necessary in order to be saved. And so Paul reminds them of the gospel he's preached to them. Before your eyes, he says, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, when we read that, we can't help but reflect on on something very similar that Paul said to the Corinthian Christians. I'm reading 1 Corinthians where Paul writes, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, it becomes clear that this kind of language is the language of the gospel. You know, later on in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul explains. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And so when Paul reminds the Galatians that he portrayed Jesus Christ crucified to them, see, he has in mind the entire gospel message. Christ died for your sins. That's what you believed, he said. Now go back one chapter to Galatians 2, verse 16. You know, there Paul wrote, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, just so we understand, that word, justified, means to be counted righteous. It means that God declares us as righteous and not guilty when we stand before him. And so Paul says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Now look, the issue in Galatia was whether Gentile believers should be required to undergo circumcision and be required to obey the law of Moses. Now understand what that would have meant. It would have meant that Gentile converts to Christ would have had to change their eating habits, for instance. They would have had to become familiar with the food laws of Leviticus 11, in which they would have had to understand which animal, which seafood, which bird they were allowed to eat, and what they were absolutely required to observe. You know, most Jews would have consulted a rabbi because you had to be fairly certain how clean an animal was even when it was prepared. But that was not where it ended. Then Gentiles would have had to learn the proper Jewish feast days, how to celebrate everything from Passover to first fruits to the Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths. And more than anything, they would have had to learn to observe the Sabbath. And no, that didn't just mean a day of rest. They were all manner of rules associated with it. And in the end, that would have meant that conversion would have made you Jewish. And if you haven't heard me say it, let me say it again. The law contains both the moral imperatives of the Ten Commandments, but it also specifies how those moral imperatives are to be worked out in the national life of Israel. But the bewitchers that Paul speaks of were those people who said that everything from circumcision to feast days to dietary laws had to be done by the Gentiles, and if they didn't do it, they weren't going to be saved. Now, as big as a problem as that was, that still wasn't the main problem. Go forward now to Galatians 3, verse 11. There Paul writes, 
Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. This is a very important statement. Clearly, the bewitchers had taught the opposite doctrine. They would have said, if you're going to be declared righteous before God, you're going to have to observe the law. I think they might have said, yeah, you get saved by faith in Jesus, but you've got to keep the law at the same time. Now, let me suggest to you an illustration. Imagine for a moment that you've just bought a very expensive racing car built built for the track. You take possession of it, and the first thing you do is you take it off-road to a, a very difficult logging road. Immediately, you encounter problems, and you're frustrated. What a dumb car. It can't handle this logging road, so in anger, you take your damaged car back to the dealer. Well, the man who sold you the car says, well, listen, that's not what this car was designed for. If that's what you wanted, you should have bought a Jeep. In essence, we might say the same about the law. So what do I mean? In Galatians, Paul is saying, if you want to be declared righteous before God, well, the law can't help you. Only faith in Jesus will get you forgiven and declared righteous before God. Now, having said that, let's push forward to Galatians 3.21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Let's take that one step at a time. The law is not contrary to the gospel, says Paul. Paul repeated the same thing in Romans 7, 12. There he said, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. See, there's a confusion among many modern Christians. The New Testament never condemns the law per se. Rather, it celebrates the law. It's God's holy law. There's nothing wrong with the law. Again, lest you misunderstand, let me say it again. The Ten Commandments are the core of the law. The rest is an elaboration of those Ten Commandments worked out for the Jewish people. Now, it's one thing to argue that the Gentiles never had to be circumcised, because that's true. But that's not really what Paul is aiming at in Galatians. There he's saying that the bewitchers have gotten you to believe that you can get saved through the law. But the law was never designed to do that. The law was never designed to give you eternal life. Let me put it another way. The law has no power to forgive you. And the law also can't change your heart. It wasn't designed for that. Think of it simply. The law that says you shall not commit adultery, but that law can't stop you from committing adultery. It can't stop you from lusting and deeply wanting to commit adultery. No matter how long you read the law to yourself, and no matter how hard you try, the law will never change your heart. That's because the law was not designed to change your heart. That's not its purpose. That's not its function. But I can almost hear the question, well, what then was the law designed to do? Well, look at Galatians 3.19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promises were made. Now, there's so much to be said in that verse, but I'm going to concentrate on but one thing. The law was added in order to show you your sin. It came to strip you of your pretensions and came to declare you sinful. It should make you despair and lead you to want to be saved. That's what it was designed to do. But the bewitchers, well, they told you otherwise. They told the people in Galatia 
that by doing the law, they will be saved. And that is called legalism. Now, legalism is not obedience. We're called upon to obey the Ten Commandments. Legalism is the belief that I can save myself by doing the law. And that's untrue. That is untrue because even if you suddenly start to do the law, that won't erase your past sins. You're still guilty. And secondly, legalism is the belief that there is something that you can do to save yourself. Here's the bad news. You're so sinful. You're such a sinner. You're incapable of saving yourself. You're incapable of reforming yourself. Only Christ can do that. Only the gospel can do that. Only the spirit in the heart of a believer can change the heart. So why do we study the Ten Commandments? Well, we study the Ten Commandments not to be saved, but to learn what righteousness looks like and to learn what sin looks like as well. In this way, we will keep our eyes on Christ because the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who has given us a transformed heart, longs eagerly for the way of Christ. We will in the end seek and desire to be conformed to Christ in every way. John, let me uh, add on a question about the whole legalism issue. So my understanding is right now is that the law cannot save you. Being legalistic is not going to bring you salvation. Yeah, if we see the law as a means unto salvation, uh, we're just dead wrong. The law will not save us in any sense at all. So, So what's our responsibility then to the law once we're saved? Do we have some kind of responsibility to it? Yeah, because uh, the Scripture says that that all sin is lawlessness, so it's law-breaking. And uh, so, you know, we always hold before us the fact that now that we are in Christ, Lord, teach me your way so that I might be obedient to you. So, uh, obedience, um, so we would look at the Ten Commandments and say, uh, Lord, I, I want to do this because it is my desire to do that which is in keeping with your word. So really, when we're talking that way, we're saying, you know what, the Old Testament is still very, very relevant to our faith. Yeah, it's very relevant to our faith. That's why I've never liked the word Old Testament, Ben. I like First Testament and then the, the, the New Covenant. Uh, so, But yes, it is relevant, uh, but we need to recognize there's a difference between law and, and grace. Thanks so much, John. And remember to continue to join us for this series, The Ten Commandments, right here on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. You know, some things don't mix. Oil and water, plaids and polka dots. It's not that these couplings never occur, but our minds don't really readily pair them. The same holds true with our pains and joys, both expected, but we rarely consider them as simultaneous. But God adjusts our thinking. The Bible reminds us that joy can be found in trials and our tears can be turned into laughter. It's not instant or self-generating, but a matter of God's grace working within us, like gold refined in fire. Joy can be found in the midst of struggle. So to encourage you as our free gift this month, we want to send you a combo CD series from Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again called Joy in Tough Times. Five messages from Dr. John in five joy-filled laugh-again episodes. Joy in tough times. Our free gift to you 
just for calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.